Dog Works Radio is sponsored by Alaska Dog Works. Check out their website at alaskadogworks.com. Start your day tomorrow with the Daily Dog with Michelle Forto, the morning podcast on Dog Works Radio. Apple Podcast reviewer Patty Christensen calls it funny, smart, and filled with all the info I want to know about dogs. I love this show. Wake up with the Daily Dog, available on Dog Works Radio on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your shows. Radio Free Palmer 89.5 KVRF presents Mushing Radio, hosted by Robert Forto. Mushing Radio is about dog-powered sports, living in the Great White North, and mushing. Visit our website at mushingradio.com. Here is your host, Robert Forto. Hello and welcome everybody. This is Robert Forto and you're listening to Mushing Radio here on KVRF 89.7 in the Matsu Valley. RadioFreePalmer.org is our live streaming site and you can find all of our episodes over on DogWorksRadio.com. Make sure you check us out on social media, searching for DogWorks Radio. And I am joined today by my co-host. His name is Alex Stein, calling in from California. Alex, how's it going? It's going great, Robert. Very excited that we are almost at Iditarod time. Just a few more weeks. We um, are pulling past the Yukon Quest, which is still going on, but we have a winner in the Quest. And it's... uh, it's just a very exciting time for, for mushing. It is an exciting time. And on today's show, we're going to tell you the rest of the story after our Serum Run series here on Mushing Radio. Last week, we talked about Balto and Togo and sort of the the events that led up to to their lives after the big uh, event, uh, the Serum Run event. But now we're going to talk about some of the things that happened Aside from the the serum run, sort of the lead up to it, we're going to talk about the Olympics, uh, the Iditarod, and all that, right? Absolutely, and you know, it's it's. Uh, I've been watching a lot of the um, current Olympics, current Winter Olympics, and it's a very exciting thing to watch a lot of these events. But I think I am with you in that I would still love to see dog sled racing as an Olympic event, either an exhibition event or a, or a full medal event. You know, they had an exhibition event back in 1932. And I know we talked a little bit about that on uh, the rest of the story part one, just last week where uh, Leonard Seppala, Norman Vaughn, uh, those sort of folks were running in that event. And it was like we said, just an exposition type event up in Lake Placid in New York. It was more of a sprint race, and it was pretty well um, uh, thought upon. It, you know, a lot of people really wanted that to be involved, but I don't think it was just the right time. You know, we were just coming out of the Depression and all that sort of stuff, and to add in other sports, and, and of course, sports like mushing, which is a much more in-depth type uh, sport than more of the single type sports that you will often find in the Winter Olympics. You know, typically it's it's a one person deal with the um, you know with the uh, you know skiing and and that sort of thing. Not necessarily with teams as you are in in other events. And if you add dogs, that's a, an entirely different deal. Right, and you know I think that there was it, it was very well thought of, and um, if if things had been a little bit different, if there had been like a little bit more 
you know, economic prosperity and, and things like that, I think it would have been a very different deal. And I think that, you know, in in the 30s, um, uh, as people were really, really suffering, it sort of became, uh, I think, something that was seen as a little bit frivolous to to get, you know, hundreds or thousands of dogs and transport them all over the world when people were starving. Right. And you know what's interesting with that is uh, my neighbor just up the road, the Norrises, J.P. Norris's father, Earl Norris, and his wife, Natalie, were just getting started in mushing in the late 30s, I guess it was, with Siberian Huskies. And and that's sort of interesting with this because, of course, uh, Leonard Seppala was the one that introduced most of America to the Siberian Husky as it is known today. And here in Alaska, it was uh, Earl and Natalie Norris that, that did that and, of course, introduced them to quite a bit of, of mushing uh, in our local community. And it's interesting, Alex, because I know I've told you this story before, but their dog kennel uh, was in the middle of downtown Anchorage, right where uh, the Sears Mall is right now. And I think that's really cool because now that is, you know, covered in, uh, you know, a major metropolitan area. And back in the day, that's where a major sled dog kennel was. That's, that's pretty amazing. And it, you know, it's, um, Anchorage for people who haven't been there is is a very interesting and and kind of large and area city uh and it's really spread out but that is that is pretty close to uh you know it's not downtown but it's pretty close to the center of town right and just co- sort of bringing that forward Earl and Natalie's granddaughter Lisbeth Norris uh is still an Iditarod competitor I guess she's ran in the last three or four races with her teams of Siberians. So it can really be tied back to way back in the day, uh, right after the serum run, you know, within a decade or so of when their kennel started. So I think that history is sort of a true testament to back to the serum run days. Absolutely. And, you know, as, as time went on and as, you know, the, the forties and fifties and sixties, um, were rolling on, we really saw in Alaska a lot of people moving away from using sled dogs in, in traditional ways uh, and people starting to use snow machines and starting to use airplanes for things like um, mail delivery. And so there was a period of several decades where it was starting to look like the uh, the sled dogs and and the use of sled dogs in Alaska was going to was going to disappear. Right, there wasn't nearly uh, the focus on distance mushing in that uh, that that sort of time in those decades of the 40s and 50s. Of course, sprint mushing was still big. Uh, a lot of the uh, the villagers here in Alaska would use. Uh, sprint mushing as sort of a uh, entertainment activity that's been their their weeks doing their jobs, whether it was hauling gear and, and trap lines and sort of stuff using dog teams, and then they would all get together and run uh, mushing events in the weekends, and they would sort of claim prizes about who had the fastest dogs and, and that sort of thing. And then folks like uh, Roland Lombard uh, would come up from uh, the lower 48, uh, in, in particular in the New England area, and would run uh, the Fur Rondi and the North American and, and just clean house with his dogs. And that sort of brought um, 
you know, a wider audience. It became a more of a national type audience versus just more of an Alaskan audience. And then we worked our way in towards a little bit more of the distance type mushing events, uh, you know, with with the advent of the Iditarod. And I know you want to talk a little bit about that. Right. And, you know, we we tend to look at the Iditarod as being something that's, uh, you know, that just kind of appeared. But there actually was many, many years um, where uh, the Reddingtons were, were trying to put this race together, um, you know, and, and it started out as a way of trying to honor the role of the sled dog in Alaska. And there's a little bit of uh, kind of controversy about whether the Iditarod only honors sled dogs in Alaska or whether the Iditarod specifically um, is meant to honor the 1925 serum run. Um, and people go back and forth about this. And I've been lectured by people who know a lot more than I do uh, on both sides of the issue. Right. Um, but certainly, you know, you can't you can't look at the history of sled dogs in Alaska and ignore the serum run because it was such an important event. And it did take place largely along the historic Iditarod Trail. Right. And, you know, I think you know, I, I, I agree with you. I've I've sort of been on both sides of that argument many a times. And there's so many parallels to the Iditarod and the serum run. You know, of course, it, it, it starts in Anchorage. It started by train with the serum run and ended up in Nenana and worked its way around. And then, of course, ends in Nome. There has to be a reason why uh, that uh, that um, event, the Iditarod, ends in Nome. I guess they could have ended it anywhere. Uh, Kotzebue or, or anywhere uh, if they would have just put in a new trail, I guess. But yeah, I think there is sort of the romanticism along with the Siriman and Iditarod and tying them together, just sort of that world of sled dogs and, and how they are sort of just a force in the north and, you know, bringing the, a community together that way. And with that, before we talk about um, uh, the Iditarod in its current day, uh, just a couple of years ago, I was it last year that uh, the Iditarod started in Fairbanks, and they ran pretty much on the same trail that they ran the Serum Run on from Fairbanks on over to Huslia and Ruby and that sort of thing before hooking up with the current Iditarod Trail at the Yukon River and working its way up, which is pretty much the same trail on both, both events. Is that right? Right. And, you know, one one thing I wanted to mention real quickly is that when – when the Iditarod was first being conceived, one of the initial ideas for it was to go to go about halfway, to go approximately to um, the the village of Iditarod, and then turn back and just come back to Anchorage. And it was in the course of planning that uh, Joe Reddington and and a bunch of the other early people involved with the first. Iditarod decided that it would be much more romantic and would really get people's attention a lot more if they went all the way to Nome rather than going halfway and then turning around and coming back. 
So I guess the Iditarod planning started in the late 60s or so, and it was a really short race back in the day. I guess they were just running more of a, a almost a sprint race, wasn't it? Just right around here in Knick uh, was the first couple of races with those folks, and they were just getting their feet wet and figuring out logistics and that sort of thing. Right. I I believe the um, the first race that sort of evolved into Iditarod was in uh, I want to say 1967 um, to commemorate the 100th um, anniversary of the first all Alaska sweepstakes. Right. Right. And that, that definitely want to talk about that as we progress through our decades as well, because that <laughs> excuse me, that becomes an important one in regards to. Uh, Leonard Seppala, and, and he was a multi-winner with that as well. So I guess the Iditarod started, what was it, 1973 or 74? Right. The first uh, Iditarod was 73. And it was definitely a much different race than it is today. It was more of a camping trip. took several weeks to get from Anchorage to Nome. There wasn't nearly... Uh, the the um, you know the field or the competitors that we have today the dogs were much different back in the day uh, they weren't nearly as fast as they are today they were much more husky type dogs uh, uh, the gear was different the sleds were different the trail was not nearly as well groomed as it is today and it was just much more of a slower race back then than it is today yeah and when they were first running the the initial Iditarod, many of the people involved, uh, including many of the mushers, were not sure that it was actually possible to do this. They were they were not sure that anyone was going to finish. So there was much more of a a spirit of cooperation, and it was it was really first an adventure, and then only secondarily a race. I, I want to correct myself with something I just said. Um, the 1967 race was to commemorate the uh, 100th anniversary of the purchase of Alaska. Gotcha. Um, not the all Alaska sweepstakes. So okay. I misspoke there. That's okay. So then as we're working our way through the decades, the Iditarod chugs along. It becomes much more of a race type event. Uh, the competitors uh, began running the race much faster. The purse went up. The sponsors came in. Uh, and, of course, it became a much more – a viewer-friendly event, I guess it would be. You know, the newspapers picked it up, and of course, cable and and TV and all of that. And then in there, we also had that Alaska sweepstakes, the All Alaska sweepstakes, and they ran that a few times. Uh, I guess that was in the uh, what was it? The early two thousands, late nineteen nineties. Do you know that exactly, Alex? Uh, not I. I'll get it in a sec. Sorry. Oh, that's okay. So anyway, the the All Alaska Sweepstakes was run uh, in the Nome area, so out that way, not in the on the road system as as the Iditarod was, and that is tied right back to uh, the days of the Serum Run with Leonard Seppala. He won that race several times back in the 1920s or so and uh, proved to be a force to be reckoned with out there. And, of course, they brought that back, and and uh, folks like uh, Mitch Seavey ran it. I think Jeff King has ran that as well. Uh, sort of the who's who of mushing today has ran in that race as well. Are you there, Alex? Yeah, they ran it. Yeah, they ran it in um, 1983 for the 75th anniversary, and Rick Swenson won. 
uh, that year, and then they ran it again in 2008 for the 100th anniversary, and Mitch Seavey won that race. And one of the things that characterized that race also is it was a winner-take-all. So, you know, the the person who won got all of the prize money. So if you were second, you you got you got a thank you and I believe dinner. <laughs> and if I'm correct, I believe you had to finish with all of your dogs in harness. Is that true? Uh I am not sure about that. That may be true. I know that there's been some talk about that uh, with the current Iditarod and sort of the ability to drop dogs along the trail. And if if they went back to the All-Alaskan sweepstakes days, I believe they had a rule that you had to finish the race with all of the dogs that you started with, which would make for a very interesting racing environment back then as as it would today. So tying this back to the Olympics in the late 90s or so, Norman Vaughn, who was not only a polar explorer and and an Iditarod racer, but also one of the folks that ran back in that 1932 Winter Winter Olympic Exposition uh, event with Leonard Seppel and those guys, he ran in that uh, Olympics, but then he came up and he did a serum run, commemorative run, or an expedition uh, that traced the original Serum Run route, and that went on for several years. What do you know about that? Uh, the the Norman Vaughn um, Serum Run 25 was to commemorate the the Serum Run, and Norman Vaughn is is a very inspirational figure for me and a lot of other people. His motto was "Dream big and dare to fail," and he was someone who was still mushing dogs, who was running. Iditarod, uh, well up into his 80s, I believe, who did the Serum Run expedition several times, um, including when he was well into his 90s. Uh, what they did for the the Serum Run expeditions is they would have mushers and snow machiners. So there would be uh, generally uh, somewhere around a dozen, between seven and a dozen mushers, and then uh, snow machiners who would be on their teams um, hauling gear for them, and they would follow the original 1925 Serum Run route um, and stop at all of these villages. So rather than rather than taking you know uh, a, a few days as the Serum Run did, or or a few weeks as the early Iditarods did, they would these trips would generally last about three weeks, and in each of the villages, there would be a component, an educational component. So there was a theme for each of these expeditions. And they would go into these villages and do presentations about this particular theme. So it was a way of both reconnecting with the villagers and reconnecting with, in a lot of cases, uh, a way of life that is, um, is much more traditional and also, there was a very strong educational component to them. Right. And they also carried a box of serum, whether that serum would be um, vaccinations for dogs in the villages or sort of a commemorative box. And each day on the serum run, they would pass that box of serum run from one musher to the next. And they would sort of be the the serum run musher of the day. And they would be in charge of making sure the serum uh 
made it correctly or, or safely to the next musher, which is pretty cool as well. You know, that the last time they ran at that event was in 2014. I was part of that. Uh, I was working with friends of mine here in the neighborhood, and they were the organizers of that, and I helped train for that and went up to Ninana and helped them get off. And, you know, we've been talking for several years about getting that going again, uh, my friends who were the organizers have in, have gotten out of dogs at this point and have gone on to do other things, but I've talked to many a people about getting that event back up and running again. I think that would be a, a great way to to uh, pay homage to not only to the serum run, but of course uh, dogs and, and that way of life as they work their way down the trail. So you don't know, maybe we'll do that uh, in the near future. I think it would be a cool way to get out there and see the trail. And speaking of that, Alex, I know that you talked about it uh, several times in our coverage here on our show about sort of the old stories that are left, you know, with the uh, with the mushers. I think just about all of them now, of course, have passed on. If not, they would be really close to uh, 100 years old or more. Is there anybody still alive that has that did uh, the serum run? I don't think so. They would be well over 100 now, wouldn't they? Yeah, I don't I don't believe there is either, um, because, you know, that's uh, 90, 94, 93 years ago we're talking about. So, um, yeah, unfortunately, a lot of them, a lot of them are gone. But what is lucky is that there was a concerted effort um, in the last uh, 30 years or so to get the stories from these uh, mushers who were part of the the early serum run, and one of the cool things about Alaska is that, in relative terms, Alaska is a very new area, very new state. So uh, I have a friend who is very active in politics and was saying that it's great to, uh, you know, to be involved in politics in Alaska because literally the people who founded the state are for the most part still around. Now that probably won't be the case in. 10 or 20 years, but right now they are. And in the same way, uh, back in the, um, in the eighties and nineties, there was a concerted effort to capture the stories of these mushers before they, while they were still around. And there are several, um, archives that have oral histories and, um, and statements from a lot of the 1925 serum run mushers. In your research for the series, were there a lot of voice recordings? Uh, I I think there are a lot of voice recordings that are in Alaska. I wasn't able to come up with many of them that are online, um, but I believe that there are a bunch of them in various archives in Alaska. You know, I would love to hear some of those old stories uh, from, from a lot of those folks. I know that a lot of those stories are still still held in a lot of those families. They're still talked about in, you know, the oral history of Alaska. And I think that uh, that's a very important part of not only our state's history, but of course the sports history as well and the lifestyle history of mushing. And I know just a few years ago, I guess it was, Maybe four or five years ago, they did a documentary called Icebound about uh, the the serum run and uh, the the writer, producer, and director Daniel Anchors uh, was a guest on our sister show, The Side Vibe, with Dorothy Wills Raftery. And unfortunately, right after it was uh, released, I know he did the 
the uh, film festival up here in Alaska that you did, the uh, Anchorage Film Festival, he passed away, I believe it was from cancer. So it didn't get a lot of uh, hubbub or press after that because, you know, it sort of uh, uh, passed along with him. Do you know much about that documentary at all? I, I don't. I've just I've heard it mentioned a number of times, but I have not seen it yet. It's a good one. It does tell the stories, and there's some reenactments a- along the way, and it, it's a great way to introduce new people to uh, this event in our history, which is, you know, it's it's pretty cool because it really bridges the gap. And I know you told a lot of this in your in your series. It bridged the gap from sort of the old way of life uh, up here in Alaska, and of course the old way of life in the United States. Uh, in how things were, you know, sort of local community driven. And then all of a sudden, national stories could be reported on, national stories that weren't necessarily, you know, uh, major impact stories like, you know, the war and the economy and that sort of things in the newspaper. It was a a feel-good story, and I think it was one of the first ways that um, a story could be told in that way with the use of newspapers and, and that sort of thing in ways that hadn't been done before. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it it's really important for people to pay attention to some of this history. And, and there are a lot of sources and, and a lot of stories that you can learn. Uh, and I think sometimes, especially with, with people who are you know, who are a little bit more reserved. And I think that's the case with a lot of the people involved with the serum run is they, they maybe didn't realize how important and amazing what they did was. And they thought, Oh, this is, this is really just something that is another day's work, another, another activity that I did. And then I'll do something else tomorrow. Right. So to end this whole process, Alex, we've been working on this since, uh, late into the fall, early into the fall, I guess we started working on it in, uh, in late October or so. So to sort of sum everything up, you know, why did you pick this story? And, you know, I, I guess it was definitely a labor of love, but to finish this whole thing up, why did you pick this story and why did you want to tell it? You know, I think that this story, a lot of times when you have something that is tragic or that stems from a tragedy, you find that it brings out the best in people. And it seems uh, lately like maybe we really need some pure good news. Maybe we really need something that is very inspirational and and can make you think, well, maybe I'm maybe I'm never going to get behind a dog team and go out when it's 70 below zero. But perhaps knowing that these things are possible and knowing that people did these will encourage people in facing whatever their ch- particular challenges are. So I've always found that this is a very, very inspirational story and uh, wanted to share some of that and hope that it would inspire other people. You know, I keep coming back to that quote that you had in one of the earlier episodes. I don't remember who it is and I don't remember exactly the quote itself, but something to the effect of we've got to get going, people are dying, and and the dog's got to go. Do you remember that quote? Yeah, it's uh, Wild Bill Shannon, who um, when he got to Ninana, he was, uh, it was was very, very cold, and it was the middle of the night, and um, he was asked if he wanted to wait until morning when it might have been more more prudent and he'd been, would be able to see better and it would be warmer. And he just said, 
if people are dying, let's get going. Right. I think that sums up the whole story in itself. You know, that is that that story of of perseverance, that that story of of helping out your fellow man, the story of of sort of just going out there and tackling the unknown. There's so many parallels and so many metaphors just in that quote alone, I think, is 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 reason enough to tell that story here on Mushing Radio. and, And I'm glad we did it. Yeah, me too. And it's uh, I it's been a real it's been a real amazing process putting all of this together and getting so much amazing feedback from our listeners. And as usual, I want to encourage listeners to who have, you know, anything, any comments or reactions to share them with us. We're we're almost always available through social media. And please be sure if you liked it or if you didn't, leave us a uh, a review over on Apple Podcasts. That help us that helps us out on the rankings and helps folks find our shows by having those uh, those reviews. They can learn about what the show is about. So please leave some comments there, uh, whether it's a one star or a five star. Uh, we would like to hear from you as well. So I look forward to season two, whenever that's going to happen. Hopefully, hopefully that happens here in 2018. We'll start to get to work on that relatively soon. And until then, we will be back uh, on our regular coverage here on Mushing Radio. Alex and I typically do every couple of weeks here on the show, and we talk about all sorts of topics in the off-season, whether it be racing or, or news or events that are up going. And I know we've had a heck of a lot of events this past year, and, and it's it's been good to have uh, sort of a sounding board for that, not only for ourselves, but for our listeners as well. We're a little bit different than your typical media because we have uh, not only a, a fan, but also a musher along as well. So I think uh, we have a very balanced perspective in our coverage of not only uh, the current events, but also Iditarod and that sort of thing. So Alex, it has been a pleasure working with you on season one here on Mushing Radio, talking about the 1925 Serum Run. Anything you want to mention in closing? Uh, you know, literally this morning, I was looking at um, an article that I found, which I guess this happened last year. I I didn't I didn't see it when it happened last year, but apparently there was an ex- exhibition at the um, Anchorage Museum where they brought up the body of Balta, which is usually in Cleveland, and it was on loan to the Anchorage Museum, and they brought Togo from. Um, the Iditarod headquarters, and they had Togo and Balto, or, or you know, the stuffed bodies of Togo and Balto, in this one place uh, in Anchorage for about three months during this ex- exhibition, and that was very cool to see. So there you go, guys. Full circle. Things are still happening in our history uh, that revolve around the 1925 serum run. So stay tuned here to Mushing Radio. We're happy to have you along, and we will see you guys next time. Goodbye. Did you know that Alaska Dog Works trains service dogs for those in need throughout North America? Each and every service dog that is trained through the Lead Dog Service Dog Program and Michelle Forda winner team has an individual training plan. We train for autistic, mobility, psychiatric, and PTSD for our soldiers for service work. If you know of someone that may need a service dog, please take a moment and check out Alaska Dog Works on social media and at alaskadogworks.com.
Hi guys, it's Alex. If you are a fan of Sled Dog Sports and the Iditarod, Mushing Radio is the show for you. Each Wednesday, we drop a new episode on Dogworks Radio. So be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. If you like our podcast, there are a few things you can do. You can take a couple of minutes and go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. You can also check out all of our DogWorks Radio sponsors and promotions in our show notes. Another thing you can do is go over to Facebook, like our Facebook page, and one last thing, please tell all of your friends by spreading the word about DogWorks Radio. Thank you so much for listening to us. We really appreciate you. DogWorks Radio is produced by Robert Forto. Logo art by Angry Squirrel Studios. DogWorks Radio is produced in conjunction with KVRF 89.7 in Palmer, Alaska. For dog training advice, you can contact Alaska DogWorks at 907-841-1686 or visit their website at alaskadogworks.com. If you have a show idea or would like to be a guest, please contact us by sending an email to live at dogworksradio.com. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.